You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Sexual assault, ableism, drugs, suicide, parental abuse, and forbidden fruit. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! Can the physician make sick men well, and can the magician a fortune divine, without lily, germander, and sops and wine, with sweetbriar and bonfire, and strawberry wire, and columbine? Within and out, in and out, round as a ball, with hither and thither, and straight as a line, with lily, germander, and sops and wine, with sweetbriar and bonfire, and strawberry wire, and columbine. Any lass for a duke, a duke who wears green, in lands where the sun and the moon do not shine, with lily, germander, and sops and wine, and sweetbriar and bonfire, and strawberry wire and columbine. When Aubrey did live, there lived no poor. The lord and the beggar on roots did dine, with lily, germander, and sops and wine, with sweetbriar and bonfire, and strawberry wire and columbine. There are windfalls of dreams, there's a wolf in the stars, and life is a nymph who will never be thine, with lily germander and sops and wine, with sweetbriar and bonfire, and strawberry wire and columbine. Blood in the Mist by Hope Merlees. Hello all, welcome once again to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam, with me as always is Philip. Hello. And uh, today we're looking at another somewhat obscure, apparently its star has risen a lot in recent years, um, partly because uh, Neil Gaiman has cited it as a a major inspiration for him and one of his favorite books. Uh, The book is Lead in the Mist by Hope Mirlees, published in 1926, and we will be talking about it as soon as we're back from this message. New this April from HyperX, it's the HyperX Clutch Controller. Get better control of your mobile gaming with its comfortable grip, directional pad, analog sticks, and shoulder buttons. This versatile controller can fit a variety of phone widths and can also connect wirelessly for use on tablets and PCs. Learn more and pick one up online at HyperXNHP.com, Amazon, Micro Center, Target, Best Buy, and other fine retailers. Take a time machine back to before the world went to hell, around the year 2000. The 80s and 90s were so rad. The movies, the music, the TV, the games, that's what I want to talk about. If you're cool enough, join us and listen to Less Than 2000, because that's all we talk about. Adam and Chad live Less Than 2000, now part of the HyperX Podcast Network. And we're back. Okay. Um, So, yeah, so... um, Blood in the Mist, this is a book that is um, another example of how fantasy is not the genre people think it is. There was a style of fantasy that was that existed, um, especially in the pre-World War II era years. It seems to cluster around the 20s, but the whole early 20th century. Um, and uh, it's, it's very different from how we tend to think of you know, fantasy stories uh, kind of goes of a piece with like uh, Jurgen and uh, Dun- Lord Dunsany, especially the King of Elfland's daughter. Did we talk about the King of Elfland's daughter when we did uh, Lord Dunsany? Uh, I hadn't read it at the time. I have since. Mm. Yeah, it's um, um yeah, yeah. That that's very relevant to uh, to this book. It's very similar thematically and and stylistically in a lot of ways too. Right. Yeah, and it was it was published two years before this one, uh, and may have been inspiration. Dunsany 
uh, if you guys, if anyone wants to go back and listen to the episode, it's uh, All the Gods Save One, uh, around our 12th episode, I think. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, Lord Dunsany, who is this uh, very important figure in fantasy uh, literature, uh, who got, was mostly forgotten for a while. Again, people have sort of rediscovered him recently, but um, yeah, and, and he was probably, like, he was probably too fantasy in the very late 19th I guess he published in the very very early 20th century um, yeah, he was yeah. Mo- most of his stuff is is uh, Edwardian right so he was sort of the Tolkien in terms of influence of his time up until Tolkien came along so the first 50 years of the 20th century it was really more uh, Dunsany even the Hobbit I mean the Hobbit came out in the 30s and it was kind of, but it was kind of a trifle that it was popular but it was sort of a small thing and it uh, it it's actually closer to a Dunsanian uh, style in some ways than Tolkien's later thing, what we think of as Tolkienian in style. Um, but, um, and, and, yeah. uh, and of course, you know, it, uh, he's been described as your favorite fantasy author's favorite fantasy author. Uh, right, like exactly. Neil Gaiman loves him. Uh, Lovecraft was a huge fanboy. Some mm-hmm. speak in person at one point. Uh, Tolkien is known to have read him and at least, like some of his stuff. Tolkien He's aware of his critical, work, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tolkien had this weird thing of just like everyone does fantasy wrong except me, <laughs> so I'm not surprised uh, if he didn't like Dunsany. But uh, I, I don't mean, think he did. It's not that he didn't like him. It just uh, we have some notes where you criticize one of his stories, sort of. Thing. Right. Yeah. 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 That's that's fair. Although, yeah, you know, and you know, he he, he I can p- imagine. Tolkien having like extensive notes for Dunsany, but probably yeah, generally liking him though too at the same time. Um, uh, like even like C.S. Lewis is good pal. He didn't want to. <laughs> he he was like, well, here's what you're doing wrong in the Narnia yeah. books, right? So because uh, <laughs> you didn't, you can't include modern elements. That doesn't work. For yeah, and reason. that was his issue with uh, the Lord Dunsany story in question, which um, is seems to be set in a secondary fantasy world with all these made up names and stuff, but it ends with. Um, a character for no reason surviving till the modern day and um, with right. no explanation, just being like referencing, you know, uh, putting together doilies and stuff. You know, it's right because Dunsany he- did not like did not um, care about actually building up a cohesive continuity, world building sort of thing, uh, and that's Tolkien's whole deal. So. Right, and that is that is exactly it. Like fantasy, at a certain point, um, again pre-Tolkien, uh, the world-building aspect wasn't completely absent, but it was much rarer in uh, those stories. What I'm what I'm starting to uh, sort of uh, see from what's sort of kind of kind of starting to congeal from uh, reading a lot of the fantasy of that time is, um, you know, you've got the American pulp fantasy, you know, the Edgar Rice Burroughs and then later Robert E. Howard style, um, which is just pulp swashbuckler adventure, but also with fantasy elements. Uh, but, quote, serious fantasy, which was which has a bit more of a literary turn, especially in England, but in America too, as we saw Jurgen's written by an American. Um, it has, it's more concerned with like a dreamlike feel, and it's, I almost want to say Alice in Wonderland is, but for adults, is kind of the 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 default mode for this kind of fantasy um, generally uh, generally a bit more coherent than that because that's like basically a drug trip um, right but it has uh, elements of that um, um, dreamlike like you said dreamlike feel and it's more concerned with with the feeling and what um, evoking ideas rather than um, uh, building uh, a coherent world, usually. Right, and, but it's also the fact that it's, yeah, like Alice in Wonderland sort of way on the spectrum of just completely dreamlike and hallucinogenic, and, you know, the Lead in the Mist and King of Elfland's Daughter have worlds that have a little more of a solidity to them in terms of being consistent. But um, it's the, it's there's an element of, I guess, satire, or at least commentary, like social mm. commentary or, or uh, cultural commentary that's going in. They're often concerned with people's relationships with the fantastical or with imagination or which is in fact a big part of what this novel specifically is about um and in fact both the, this and the king of elfland's daughter 
involve countries that border on the the lands of fairy and that's used in both cases as a metaphor for like humans being able to sort of exist in the mundane realm but also in the world of i guess what you'd say it to be very broad about it the world of the imagination right like i'm not i'm not wrong yeah. about that oh yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah a lot of the myths is very much about uh you know uh, like Freudian ideas, like the ego and superego and id, and um, like the the conscious and unconscious and all that stuff. Um, right. Well, wouldn't that be it, Jungian then more than Freudian? Well, Freud also talked about that, but yeah, yeah, Jung as well. Like all all this, like it's mostly nonsense, but just <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, well, I just I I'm just that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that this. I read a little bit about this you know, people's commentaries on this book, and I hadn't heard the specific Freudian interpretation, so I'm just, that's the, but it, I, like, I, yes, you're right, it's about the sort of, you know, conscious and unconscious aspect of it, but I, I'm not sure I see the id, ego, or superego there as much. Well, uh, just in the sense of, um, um, the, um, uh, Doromir, the, the land that's bordering fairyland, um, closes itself off from, um, the fanciful completely to the point where the word fairy becomes an obscenity and um, right. they ban everything related to fairies. And, um, you know, if, like the worst insult you can call somebody is a son of a fairy. Um, mm -hmm. And th this, and they're, they become very logical and very um, uh, proper, if you will. Um, and um, uh, the book is sort of about um, the culture starting to, um, uh, um, be infected embrace, with embrace or at least start to take in these um, older uh, sort of more um, less logical more um, based on uh, emotion and um, um, intuition and uh, imagination um, right and accept those parts into yourself as like both sides are necessary for to be a functional human being and if you close off one side then you're um, less than that right yeah no absolutely that's that's there um i i um i actually find and i mean this is at the risk of being one of these guys who just found a hammer and now everything looks like a nail uh you know i've been reading i think i mentioned in an earlier podcast uh, or an earlier episode or uh, an episode or two back uh that i've been uh listening to the revolutions podcast a lot which is really good if you get a chance um but it it does talk a lot about um, and, and in this world uh, of Doromir, uh, which, of which Ludden the Mist is the capital, uh, it borders on fairy, and, but they had had a, uh, a, a duke, it was a duchy, uh, Duke Aubrey, who was the, 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 the last leader of this, this, uh, this kingdom, and, uh, or duchy, I guess, and um, he, uh, he was sort of this wild pagan figure, uh, you know, he was, he was described as very handsome, angelic in face, uh, but a hunchback, um, and very... I believe Aubrey is based on uh, the original version of Oberon from uh, um, the Tales of Charlemagne, who was um, described as a handsome hunchbacked fairy. Oh, okay. And then um, Shakespeare picked up the Yeah, I was going to say, I know that from Midsummer Night's Dream. I, ha I didn't know there was a connection to, yeah. to something older, but I guess there always is. Yeah, so I believe he's... Yeah, I believe he's... Uh, I haven't actually read that because it's long um but is that um, orlando furioso uh, from what um no uh though that that's sort of a similar thing this is but it, it's um yeah one of the very like charlemagne had a lot of tales mm -hmm. told about him and this okay. is one of them oh i didn't realize that but yeah oh uh just uh i, I looked up the name of the, the book i was referencing it's a 13th century uh story called God, French. Uh, Le Prousse, uh, Le Prouesses, a fait du noble Juan de Bordeaux. Um, okay. it's a, sorry, I'm I'm very sorry to anybody who um, heard that um, of any language. Um, it's it's about this son of um, uh, Charlemagne, um, and Oberon was uh, described as being very handsome of face, but dwarfish in stature. So. Hmm. Um, I confused that with the hunchback thing, but si similar idea. Yeah, 
yeah, just again, there's something off, quote off, not to be you know ableist about it, but you know that's the medieval conception. There's something. In this off about case, it. I think he was, uh, yeah, he was uh, cursed to be uh, short. Yeah, which also, of course, again, as as cultures would see people like that as often having you know being touched by the divine and that kind of thing as well. Um, so it's it's not you know as straightforward as well. There's something wrong with them. It's it's just like well they're. They're, they may have secret wisdom or something like that, but um, yeah, I've, I've heard it uh, theorized that a lot of the you know stories of uh, changelings in folklore um, might have right. been uh, parents dealing with like uh, their child being autistic or uh, something similar, uh, because it, it seems like the child's quote normal for for a little while, but then changes all of a sudden, um, yeah. and that's that's often uh, what parents see with um, uh, children with autism, often it doesn't uh, manifest um, right away. Um, yeah, not not to excuse the, the torture they put no. them through, but that, that might be um, um, an explanation for that. Yeah, Oberon being the king of the fairies in Midsommar Night's Dream is how I know. Um, and that's, so that's interesting. Um, here he's a human, but he's the, um, like, he's he's sort of the embodiment of this like we don't really meet any fairies per se in this book. It's more about people who have been influenced by fairy, essentially. And um, yeah, like so as the ruler, like we see the 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 dukes of this land have sort of gone uh, further further into, I guess, fairy thinking, which is a combination of somewhat um, wildness and almost madness. And it's interesting that um, they don't. Like in this kind of setup, where it's it's this world where um, there had been fairies and the fantastical, and it's been as you say closed off. Uh, there was a, actually a revolution that overthrew Duke Aubrey and put in the burghers. Uh, so they now have a senate and a mayor who's the leader of the town, and it's all you know. It's it's much more of a post enlightenment, post monarchy situation. And um, in that situation, and and they, and as you say, they kind of they don't want people talking about fairies, and they they. They keep it, and and in particular, eating fairy fruit is seen as this horrible thing that might happen to you because fairy fruit might find its way into um, into uh, uh, Doromir, particularly floating down the river. Uh, and they've taken great steps to prevent that from ever happening. Um, and you would expect in that kind of situation, and you know, the, but the children talk about fairies, and you know dreamers and and weirdos and madmen talk about fairies and you, you'd expect the book to kind of say well the fairies are good and it's these fusty old men who won't listen to you know their their hearts and their imaginations and their emotions but the the she she's pretty clear up front that like duke aubrey was a horrible guy right like he was yeah. he was he seems to have committed sexual assault a lot uh, he, mm -hmm. he apparently committed, got his gesture, uh, to commit suicide just by needling him a lot. Um, you know, he's said to have had his side that people liked, but I mean, there's a reason they rose up and overthrew him basically. <laughs> like it's pretty, uh, he's pretty awful. Yep. And, uh, it, it, it is interesting that the book is very like, um, like just going back and, and rereading the beginning, it was pretty explicit about that. Um, when the French Revolution happened, right, it was an attempt to actually uh, block out and get rid of um, sort of the, all the old order. Of course, they got rid of the monarch, but it was also like the 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 aspects of society that clung to the old ways. For, for a brief period, they as you probably know, they rewrote, they changed the names of the months and tried to get rid of all the old gods and kings and even actively tried to get rid of the church um, for a brief period. That didn't go over very well. Uh, but it was literally like, this is an age of reason. We're going to be purely, it like socialism didn't exist yet, but it was kind of heading in that direction. But it was it was a bourgeois resolution, a revolution. And like what we're seeing here in Doromir, it was the idea of the merchants rose up and it was a like a capitalist revolution essentially and the and the the middle class the the prosperous middle class decided that it was too crazy to have a a, a mad ruler in charge anymore and when we needed a um we needed a, a sensible mode of government essentially to manage the affairs of the kingdom um and it, it's very it tracks very clearly onto what revolutions were like um 
you know, until uh, like the mid 19th century, essentially. Uh, and Merle seems to have been aware of that. So I just I just thought that was kind of interesting. Historically, there's actually a precedent there. And and again, there's a reason why the French Revolution happened. You wanted to get rid of the, the monarchy and their their depredations and all the all the uh, the the overwrought stuff they were doing. Um, but then there's the wistfulness for ah, but the olden days of magic and wonder and 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 whimsy essentially that could exist in that era. It's got a somewhat. This book has a somewhat more complex take on that. I I found or I would have said. Oh yeah, uh, I mean uh, fairyland in general. Um, I mean folklore is not, you know necessarily good like they're they're, they exist sort of outside of the bounds of human morality um the uh fairies are often very terrifying figures in Mm -hmm. folklore um i I believe that's where like the term fair folk came from like you you didn't want to upset them so you gave them a complimentary name um um yeah so uh it, it does uh tie into that uh, older conception of fairyland rather than the uh, the Victorian you know little winged guys floating around. Right. Well, that's yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing because yeah, the fairies of old folklore and even you know Shakespeare's time, for instance, were like this this pagan remnant essentially, like kind of a wild aspect both of nature and of like human. The, that's the id, you know, as you say. That's the, the 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 underlying subconscious aspect of life. But it's yeah, it's sort of dangerous and 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 well, as you might say, Dionysian versus Ap- Apollonian. Um, but then the Victorians, of course, they had to cutesify everything, and they turned fairies into cute, as you say, cute little guys with wings. Um, and this is a, and and that's the sort of frame framework of fairy that would have existed going into the nineteenth uh, the twentieth century. Uh, where fairies are seen as kind of harmless and, and piffling. Uh, but then this this book and King of Elfland's Daughter both kind of reclaim the weirdness and wildness of fairyland in a way that had gone out of it during the Victorian era, I would say. Um, but then, of course, I think it, it, it didn't really take, because, I, again, for most of the 20th century, you have, like, Walt Disney and Fantasia, and, and you know, again, fairy tales are seen as very juvenile and and gentle and and cutesy and and harmless um even then there's some there's some outliers like uh, maleficent is supposed to be a fairy yeah that's true um like she kind of has to be for the sake of the fairy tale to work right like that's yeah yeah that's just she... but still like she's not portrayed as cutesy even though the the good fairies right. are you know well she's the bad fairy right well um, that's the thing you're like yeah, but there's still that yeah. side of well, it. Well, that, that's the interesting thing, because you'd argue that, um, like, fairies are kind of beyond human morality in the classic stories. Of course, a lot of things are. I mean, that's it's a marker of, uh, like, pre... Um, uh, like, uh, pagan thinking was less concerned with good and evil and, and more just about, like whether they would help you or not essentially and you, you'd have to believe that the gods or the spirits or the fairy fair folk or whatever were were out there and they were dangerous but they could be helpful as well and it wasn't one thing or the other and and it's more just sort of this weird element of life that you i'm not going to say you never want to intersect with but you want to steer clear of it if you're ne- if you're not really careful um, it, I mean, in this case, fairies are standing for nature itself, you know, nature versus society, um, right. you know, human society. Um, um, yeah, I mean, in, in Greek mythology, the, the gods generally represented, uh, human, uh, institutions, you know, human ideas, you know, Zeus is, is the, the powerful patriarch sort of thing. And, um, but, um, there's also these you know, older beings, the titans and giants and um, nymphs and, you know, all all these um, various creatures that represent aspects of nature and they're a little more um, chaotic and less less, uh, easy to understand. Yeah, although I'd say the Greek gods, like, I mean, Pan... Is one of the Greek, the, the yeah, yeah, modern Greek but, gods, and yeah, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of pretty there, there's a lot of blending with the Greek gods because they also intermarry with um, both humans and um, nymphs, and you know, uh, so yeah. uh, I 
that was yeah overly reductive but generally like the the olympians represent um human idea like they're they're very human characters in the way they act in a lot of cases um which is yeah they're they're yeah. they're the like by, by the time of like classical greece you know they were it's a sophisticated enough culture that the stories have gotten very uh tied into humanity but you've got the sort of ancient pre you know the uh ionic and dorian sort of earlier versions of of greece uh and and like the legends are still there or zeus is just a you know a horny machine and <laughs> like all that kind of stuff is still there lurking in the background but they've 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 made it very respectable and very you know very sophisticated and civilized yeah i'm just i i just meant like um in a lot of cultures not just greek uh there's a um uh version of a story where the gods overthrew a previous race of gods who represent mm -hmm. more natural elements um say norse mythology has that with the um with the uh um the uh, odin's the war against the giants and right emir uh, and all that stuff right yeah it's they, that is a common thing i believe in uh hindu mythology there's some, there's the similar thing with that and yeah yeah exactly it's 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 so egypt ancient egypt i think had sort of different uh, and older uh, versions of the gods as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's it's a there's sort of a and it of course usually represents another culture coming in and you know taking over the previous culture and kind of dominating it, but keeping or it's about earlier of it. versions of their own beliefs. I mean, it can be either. I think right. right. Um, well, you th you think about to use the you know the to use uh, Ireland and like the, the the multiple different you know peoples who invaded over the years and and they you know they're seen as you know, or, or England, you know, the, the Normans taking over from the Anglo-Saxons. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. SequelCast 2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shurgi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. New this April from HyperX, it's the HyperX Clutch Controller. Get better control of your mobile gaming with its comfortable grip, directional pad, analog sticks, and shoulder buttons. This versatile controller can fit a variety of phone widths and can also connect wirelessly for use on tablets and PCs. Learn more and pick one up online at HyperX and HP.com, Amazon, Micro Center, Target, Best Buy, and many other fine retailers. are also associated with the dead of course and yes they... i was just gonna say that uh there, there's a um like in, in this book especially uh they very specifically link the land of fairy with like the land of the dead and that like that's why for instance duke aubrey is actually ruling in fairyland uh you know he's mentioned as having disappeared after being exiled but you know he, it's been something like 200 years at this point so he must be dead uh, but he's, you know, he's he's this mass, he's this major figure in Fairyland who's been tweaking events in um, in Doromir, and it's because he's, um, uh, you know, it's it's where the dead go. And it, there's actually something a bit clever. We'll get, uh, I'll get into that in a minute uh, when we get into the plot a bit more. But uh, yeah, it's just the idea that you know, if you go past the debatable hills, which as they're called, into Fairyland, you're not coming back, and it is you know, like death, essentially. Um, but that's, in that sense, it's like Fairyland is is framed as this thing that um, the Dormarians don't want to talk about the same way, you know, death. You don't bring up death in, you know, in a, <laughs> in a, in a, in a casual setting because it's, it's uncomfortable and it's the same idea, essentially. Um, it's more than just that. Again, it's, it's the whole state of nature, which includes death. Uh, but they do explicitly link it to, you know, the dead a few times in the book yeah uh fairies are often um uh theorized to be a form of ancestor worship or that sort of thing um like the elves in norse mythology are often um described by uh, scholars as um uh, an ancestor worship um and uh the um uh main character of this book nathaniel chanticleer often goes to gravestone stones and reads the epitaphs um and sort of um uh, imagines his own, you know, like he, he connects with the dead in that way. So it's it's uh, an interesting parallel with his connection with Fairyland. Mm -hmm. Well, that's okay. So let's talk about Nathaniel Santiclair, who is the main character 
who is definitely not a standard fantasy protagonist in any capacity because he's the middle-aged, well, you know, very comfortable uh, mayor of Lud in the Mist, and he's, uh, you know, he's a he's essentially a symbol of the powers that be. You wouldn't expect him to be the hero. Uh, and in, I mean, he's he's not a hero in any conventional sense until pretty late in the book. He's sort of a a, a bit of a, a an uptight, uh, self-involved, but also sort of silly person, I guess you might say. Um, he's not um, oddly enough. Somebody uh, one of the reviews I read uh, paralleled him with Bilbo Baggins, and that's actually that's actually probably the best parallel in fantasy. Um, that he's, again, he's a very comfortable, bourgeois, bougie, uh, sitting on his front porch kind of guy who gets swept up in a larger adventure. Yeah, and he's very, um, like you said, uptight at first. Like, um, uh, he doesn't want to be there. Um, like, maybe part part of him does, but, you know, he outwardly says he doesn't want to um, um, have anything weird happen. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he just wants everything to be proper. Yeah, yeah. And, he's... Uh, he eventually uh, starts to go with the flow a little more. Well, what the the thing that kicks off the story is that his son Ranulf uh, is accused of having eaten fairy fruit, which again is something that happens, like the accusation, whether the actual thing happens or not, uh, in uh, in Doromir. We do eventually learn there's basically a conspiracy to smuggle fairy fruit into. Uh, into Doromir that's being masterminded by Duke Aubrey and a guy called Endymion Lear, who's the doctor. Um, and uh, it's actually really interesting because, uh, again, somebody pointed out that you can swap out fairy fruit for drugs and it becomes basically, it becomes the war on drugs. Like it's, it's almost a perfect <laughs> analogy for what's going yep. on. It's, it's, there are these horrible things that you don't speak of and it corrupts our youth and it makes them into crazy weirdos and, and it makes you run off and run away from home and, and join the fairies and dance in the moonlight and you know and it's we have to stop it from getting in we have to block it off by any means necessary but also it's something we don't talk about and we're you know in polite society and that's that's a big thing with Nathaniel uh, Chanticleer he does not want to talk about them but even though he has to he's being confronted with with the evidence that it exists and yeah, which is a big legally theme in the fairy book. fruit does not exist and they, when you try somebody for possession or dealing fairy fruit um, it's uh, the legal fiction is that it's uh, silk. Um, contraband silk right yes yeah so and that's the other that's one of the cleverest bits of this book is um she keeps paralleling it like the rules of fairyland and fairy tale stories and magic with the the rules of the law because you you literally create a legal fiction uh to accomplish certain things using the law and uh you know that's the as she she points out that's basically you know <laughs> that's basically what you're doing when you say don't eat fairy food and and you know get home before midnight and don't dance at the crossroads and all that kind of stuff it's it's <laughs> you're you, with the law you're you know you're creating a you know a, you're you're paying obeisance to a world that may or may not exist and when when you uh acknowledge the law you're you're kind of doing the same way you're you're creating a an idealization of humanity that obeys certain laws that has nothing to do with nothing to do with what real humans are essentially. Yeah. It's, it's a form of magic, you know, shaping the world through ideas basically. Yeah. And the, and the coolest bit of that is you, you, as you may have noticed, um, like eventually Chanticleer has to be, is put on trial. Uh, and he's like, they think he's doing a poor job as mayor because he's getting a little, uh, he's getting a little off his head, and in fact, uh, Ranulf eventually ends up running away to Fairyland. And the the plot, which doesn't kick in till like the last fifty pages, uh, is Nathaniel finally deciding he's going to go to Fairyland to get him back. But he's not able to go to Fairyland until they uh, they depose him as mayor, uh, and they do so by decla- like because the mayor can never be deposed; he's supposed to serve out his term with no interruption, unless he's shown to be uh, there's a legal loophole, which is that if he's uh, if he's declared dead in the eyes of the law, uh, then they can strip him of his title. So they do that, <laughs> and that's actually implied that that's what allows him to travel into Fairyland because he is legally dead, which 
for fairy per- fairyland purposes, dead people can go into fairyland. Um, they don't. She doesn't hammer that home, but I thought that was a clever little bit. Yeah. And uh, yes, it's about this guy's sort of journey from being an uptight, uh, stuffy, uh, you know, guy in heavy denial to becoming a guy who uh, who will travel to fairyland and 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 basically <laughs> will uh, come to to live with it and and stops being in denial and the whole the whole kingdom goes down that road eventually. Yeah, becomes a more well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. And um he represent, you know, it's like the uh, Fisher King thing where like his state of mind represents the state of mind of the civilization he's in. Mm-hmm. And it's also a um like it's definitely there's there's definitely a lot of metaphorical stuff going on here. Uh I've also heard it compared to um a metaphor for just how art works in life essentially and and um how you know we we you know artists are sort of the weirdos that we don't like we we enjoy what they do but we don't necessarily want to to live with them you know <laughs> like they can be uh they can be weirdos and they can be rabble rousers and troublemakers essentially um and in fact more specifically you can talk about how it's the uh the specifically the fantasy genre and again, like, so this is actually something I wanted to bring up because this is a constant theme in a lot of fantasy literature of this idea of this sort of stuffy, uh, stuffy, mundane powers that want to deny the numinous and the weird and the and the surreal and the fantastical, um, and and that uh, of course fantasy is about the fantastical, so of course it's making the argument in favor of that. I, I, but there's also that sort of pre-enlightenment, post-enlightenment split that occurs a lot, and and as I, I one of the things I realized was that you could kind of compare it to um, the the dive, uh, what's the word, di- the the way that uh, science fiction and fantasy sort of started as one genre and kind of grew apart. Y- you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's it became a thing of like well, if we're going to define science fiction one way, we're going to define fantasy another way. And and that's the distinction. It's the I'm the I'm the powerful, important uh, uh, powers that be, but we think rationally, and we we have to sort of put aside the childish things and the weirdness and the and the the dreams and the and the subconscious and focus on reason and rationality, um, which is kind of how I mean that's a that's a generalization of science fiction, but that's what would dis- distinguish it from fantasy, and you know. Whereas fantasy would say, well, we're going to embrace the, the weirdness and the and the unusual. Which is ironic because the fantasy genre, especially in the last uh, 50 years or so, has become this very, um, I don't want to say formulaic, but it's it's become much obsessed with its own rules and its own uh, ways of, like its own structures. Yeah, magic systems and um, um, like detailed um, histories and... Um, yeah, it, it becomes obsessed with its own continuity, its own internal world, uh, internal consistency. Right, and and which is like it's fun to do, but and and again, it's like I get it. Like I I, I do I, I, in my head, I've always been forming this sort of vague spectrum of like maybe Tolkien at one end and Alice in Wonderland at the other, or maybe someone else. I don't know. Uh, but this idea that there's a very realistic world building and very careful world building versus just whatever weird stuff I want to write about right now that tells that, that makes the point that is effectively a dream, a waking dream. Um, and fantasy has gotten away from the waking dream aspect. It's, you know, maybe it started to creep back a little, uh, but it, you know, this kind of story really does show how, um, how that was, that was the default mode for fantasy. And it's a very useful, uh, framework for the fantastical, I think that um, that unfortunately we've we've lost. I think uh, I think this is a good good thing to bring back uh, to consider how the fantastical in fiction can be approached. Yeah, I mean, uh, with science fiction and fantasy, the di- dichotomy between the two, um, I find it funny that some you know like uh, snobs uh, say you know Star Wars isn't science fiction; it's fantasy. Right. Um, you know, there's spaceships and laser swords, you know, it's, um, 
but it, it I, I do sort of understand that that idea because in terms of like the the way the story's told, it, it does have more in common with um um like like you said more uh 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 flights of fancy and you know we want to go to this place and it's completely different from every you know there's a fifties diner here and yeah you know just you have to accept it because. You know, why not? It's fun. Well, and the explicitly Jungian. Yeah, Star Wars, I think we talked about this a bit in the Star Wars episode that we did, uh, but the ever-expanding universe. But um, it, yeah, it's it's a, it's clearly science fiction in content, but fantasy in how it's framed and how the story works, and even thematically. Um, and that's what I think causes the confusion. There's nothing in Star Wars that hasn't appeared in science fiction, including things like The Force, which is just basically telekinesis um but um when it comes to you know the story it's like well you're gonna go into a, a, a dark castle and beat an evil sorcerer to rescue a princess and you know like it's all it's all using the tropes of fantasy in terms of the storytelling it's just not uh it's just not fantasy in content um yeah and but i mean star wars didn't invent that in the science fiction context it's just that I think the the rule the dichotomy between the two uh, used to be a lot looser. Like uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs is basically, you know, fantasy in a lot of cases, but um, it's also science fiction. Um, I, I it can be both. I mean, we don't have to rigidly categorize things as one or the other. You know. Yeah. Well, it's the fantastical seen through. Like it, it's it's a frame. It's the lens through which you see things, right? It's it's. Yeah. You say this is at least clinging to a vague pretense of being scientifically plausible, even if it's not at all. But we frame it as like, well, maybe like if, and, and often it's just based on people not having a very solid grasp of science or, or what's pl practical or plausible, but they still have been presented with this idea of like, well, maybe we can find a ship that moves faster than the speed of light. So therefore, it's science fiction, even if the concept is pure fantasy as far as it goes, a, a literary conceit. Whereas with fantasy, it's the one that just says, yeah, we're not, we're not even going to pretend to justify this <laughs> as, <laughs> as plausible. It's just whatever we feel like making up, essentially. I mean, that's, that's where I would draw the distinction. I was actually thinking earlier about... Uh, uh, Frankenstein, because that's early enough in sort of the history of fantasy and science fiction, and or the divergence where it's considered to be science fiction, but it still has those same fantastical concerns. Like right? it's a gothic; it's concerned with you know the sins of man and 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 the the past reaching out with its dead hand, literally in that case. To, and nature uh, versus nurture, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is again, it's 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 science fiction in many ways because it anticipates the concerns and frameworks of science fiction, but it's fantasy in its storytelling essentially, because that was still the default mode for a lot of this stuff. Um, so that's really, that that's, that's an interesting thing. And, and that divergence has led to lots of interesting stuff, as you say, but um, yeah, it's just interesting. Like that, that is the concern with this story. And, and uh, again, it's, it's that, that thing that happened in the late 19th, early 20th centuries where people kind of went, you know, there, there was a, there was a, a lot of rationalism in the, in the Victorian era. And I think uh, there might've been a bit of a pushback of that, especially, especially post-World War One. I, I think uh, there was, there was, I think a bit more of a, a feeling that, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to be so damn serious all the time. We don't have to be so concerned with reason and rationality. And there was, there was, you know, that interest in spiritualism that we spoke about in some of the other episodes and, and a, a bit of a rebirth of the, the fantastical for a while. And then in the fifties, everyone got very, uh, very uh, square and, and obsessed with reason again. So it kind of ebbs and flows, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, we did an episode on uh, master flea by ETA Hoffman. And I did. It had uh, um, a similar premise, even though it was told a little more, a little less coherently. But uh, the idea of um, um, taking in both, like uh, there, there was an earlier stage of uh, pure romanticism where it just um, uh, a complete lack of logic, and you know it's all intuition and stuff. And then we move into the modern where it's rejecting all that and it's pure logic. And what they, the romantic period, the romantic movement wanted to do was um, um, 
not necessarily move back to the earlier state, but incorporate aspects of the earlier state into the modern logical framework mm-hmm. um, to become more more well-rounded. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a similar idea. A lot of uh, uh, book genre fiction was dealing with it this time. There's a story um, Among the Gnomes, an Occult Tale of Adventure by Franz Hartmann, um, which is about a guy who... Um, uh, goes into a mountain and meets uh, uh, a race of gnomes uh, who are um, sort of purely uh, logical in their thinking, and they, but in, in sort of comical ways. Um, and him sort of um, um, introducing them to because to, they uh, gnomes represent a stone in the earth, so they're like very um, stolid and very. Um, uh, practical people um and the main character sort of um infecting them with um uh more uh fanciful notions and it causing problems among their society hmm. yeah um it's been a while since i read that but it was it was an interesting book um but um so yeah th- these are ideas that were sort of um being played around with quite a bit yeah but i it, think this it, book uh um i think uh uh, Lead in the Mist handles it quite well. Uh, it's very, um, like stylistically, it's it's similar to Dunsany in that um, just the the use of language and stuff. But it has more of a um, Dunsany uh, does a lot by implication. You know, sets up the world just by sort of implying things, mentioning things offhand, and not explaining them. This does explain things a little more um, in, in its in its world. Um, yeah, um, but well, it still has that, aspects of that. I'd say that Dunsany evokes. It's not that he doesn't, you know, sometimes, that, uh, like in the Pagana stories, like he, he, he has an idea of what Pagana is, but he doesn't, he lets you see it in glimpses, whereas this, it, it's a little bit more uh, established as a world. Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to get at. Um, evokes a, a good way of putting it. Um, like he'll, he he'll give vibes basically rather than a concrete yeah. um, description of something. Um, one other aspect I just did want to mention. We should ra- we're probably wrapping it up soon, but um, just uh, that the um, Hope Murley's apparently um, she was like part of the literary scene in England. Like she knew a lot of uh, she knew a lot of the big writers of the time. And this is the era. This is twenty six when this book's published. Her first two books were literary novels. They weren't fantasies at all, and um, this was part of the uh, the era when actually we were starting to sort of separate the literary uh, and the serious novel from, you know, the 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 more trifling and genre maybe being left behind a little bit. Which is funny because there was such a boom in fantasy in the twenties, but I think it was maybe seen as it was starting to just be seen a bit more as a a bit more of a trifle and and you know you had Hemingway and people like that going oh this is real writing and real storytelling and and this is serious um and and uh, that seems to have been something that affected her i you know it's hard to say people don't know that much about her uh, she she wrote this is her last novel she did th- two novels before this a third one and then she ba- basically vanished and it's partly because she was very rich she was the heir to a bunch of uh, fortunes and she doesn't seem to have felt compelled to keep writing after that um, but, um, basically there was a sense of this is, you know, hobbying, this is trivial, this is trivial. Um, there, there wasn't someone to make that strong, you know, argument for genre fiction back at that time as, as something that's serious and important. And, and again, the, the, the realist novel was starting to take over and, and the literary novel was starting to become a, a real, um, a real staple of the scene. So, um, that's another thing that you could see as a subtext to the book if you wanted to um you know the idea that fantasy is kind of piffling and trifling and and not serious uh even though this is very much an adult book it's a it's a sophisticated book uh but it's you know it, there's there's a, that sort of great gatsby kind of character kind of set not the book itself but the the characters in the great gatsby going oh, i tossed off a little fantasy novel the other night you know it's just <laughs> nothing serious you know you get that kind of vibe from it you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah Oh, uh, I just wanted to briefly touch on the names. I really like the names in this book. Um, we've mentioned a few of them. Nathaniel Chant- Chanticleer, uh, Endymion Lear, Ambrose Honeysuckle, 
uh, Prunella Chanticleer, Jasmine Crabapple. Um, I just, they're very, um, I don't know, Hobbit names. Or, yeah. Um, like, well, that uh, adds uh, to what I was saying with like, there's a sense of just whimsical and triviality to everything. Like it's, and it helps deflate the pomposity. It's also kind of a Dickensian thing to do. Uh, Gormengas yeah. did something similar. The characters were all given very silly kind of kids book names and you, it made it impossible to take them seriously no matter what was happening, you know? Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, there's a TV show called uh, Carnival Row I never saw, but I just remember the names <laughs> being very, like, um, Vignette Stone Moss, Imogen Spurn Rose, yeah, Ezra yeah. Spurn, you know, um, Tormelin LaRue. Um, well that's the thing that show kind of was that's like the third generation photocopy of this because <laughs> yeah these are the kind of names people gave in this book and and in some of the other fantasy or or uh, genre fiction to to associate with like fairies and fairy tales and it's doing something very specific which is again like dickensian it's kind of signaling that maybe you shouldn't take all this seriously and we're using it to sort of undercut uh the pomposity of the characters and maybe the kind of people that we're satirizing. But then it just becomes like, well, those are the names that people have when they're fairies. And they're, <laughs> I'm a, you know, I'm a cosplayer. And so my name is Everclear Sparkleface or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So. Honesty, Sage Whipple, Verdant Gondol Much, uh, Robinade, Planter Boyle, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cornelia, Zephyr, Zabriar. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, as the sun sets over the debatable hills, we once again bid fare thee well. We are Lord High Mayor Adam Prosser and High Seneschal Philip Rice. Uh, this episode featured the strange, enchanting fiddle music of Jack Fierick, and it was maintained as a legal fiction by producer and engineer Alex Ross. Just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early, to early every time. Uh, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, comics, whatever else the fairies bring to you. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, or Spear Hafok A, and that's Hafok with an F, for Philip. Uh, also, once again, want to plug HeroesLive.tv, which is a streaming uh, website that also contains comics, which I am the uh, comics editor for. We're adding more stuff every day. Uh, go there and subscribe for a year. We're, we've got a special deal right now. We're at $60 for a year. Um, and uh, the more people we get subscribing, the more we're going to get uh, people to... Um, we're going to be able to uh, build it up into something really cool. So check that out if you would. Uh, until next time, hang a fennel wand above your lintel and don't eat the moon. <laughs>